0: Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things.
1: Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. After decades of cuts to shipbuilding and maintenance, the United States Navy has been stripped down to a fleet barely larger than it was 100 years ago, 1916. Meanwhile, China has dramatically increased its spending on its Navy, as well as on its air force, cyber, space, and uh, electronic warfare capabilities. Beijing Is building islands in the South China Sea, threatening trade routes and menacing allies. At the same time, China has cut the size of its army by more than half in the last five or six years, clearly signaling they see the actions on the sea, not on land. It may surprise you, it did me, to learn that America's historic strategic strength has been as a sea power, as a maritime nation, the U.S. has dependent on control of the sea to protect its people as well as its flow of trade. This is an issue that is barely talked about but needs to be. With me to explore this is Russ Vogt, the founder of the Center for Renewing America, and was director of the White House Office of Management and Budget in the Trump administration. He prepared President Trump's last budget, proposing a significant increase in spending on our military, on our Navy specifically, the Navy, which Joe Biden, with his usual strategic genius, promptly eliminated. Arthur Herman, one of my favorite authors, and I have a couple of his books here, uh, is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute focusing on defense, energy, and technology issues. He was senior advisor to President Trump's National Security Advisor, focusing on the need to rebuild our Navy. Um, Dr. Herman is the author of 10 books, many of them both bestsellers, I think most of them bestsellers. Um, one that I highly recommend if you want to know the roots of the thought behind our Constitution is how the Scots invented the modern world uh, to rule the waves, which gets into the history of how Britain used its navy and, and, and pioneered the use of sea power. Pioneer is the wrong word. They had a few people before him like the Vikings. Uh, and he also wrote Freedom Forge, How American Business Produced Victory in World War II, his most recent book is The Viking Heart, which talked about how the Vikings use sea power to uh, propel their way through the world and how their their lessons uh, are, are, are useful for us even today. Uh, also, it's got 90% four and five star ratings on Amazon. So it's been vetted and it's great. Russ, Arthur, great to have you guys here. Um, although we're talking about a pretty alarming topic, which is our uh, strategic capabilities, uh, Russ, you, 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 you were in the weeds on the budget and the whole defense budget, and you proposed an increase in naval spending. Give us, give us some uh, – w- let's start from there.
2: Sure. You know, one of our responsibilities at OMB is to execute the president's agenda, and he ran for office on rebuilding our nation's defenses and committed very sizable increases every year to do that. But one of the things we wanted to continue to make sure was be below the top line of defense spending – How do you, what are the metrics for the American people to be confident that they are secure, that their national security uh, is going to be taken care of? What what historically has our country relied upon? Uh, And that's when we kind of took another step and went deeper in the last two years of the administration, particularly the last year of the administration, to be able to really make sure on maritime supremacy, which is something that our country has relied upon since its founding. Uh, to ha- to be the real uh, foundation of what keeps us secure, how are we doing on that? And as you mentioned in your opener, Bill, uh, the, the uh, Obama administration uh, took us down to the lowest in 100 years. We hadn't been that low since 1916, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 270 battleships. Uh, we were able to get that back up to around 300 and put it on a trajectory towards the statutory goal of 355 ships. Uh, that is, in our mind, a good bellwether for where we need to be and, and increase it. But what we really wanted to do is to make sure we were on the right trajectory. And w- along the way, we learned a lot. And we can talk into what we learned.
1: We, we were down from, what, 6,500 ships at its peak?
2: Yeah. Well, we, we were at sizable levels in World World War II, but mm-hmm. we were at Cold War levels. Cold War um, levels. You know, in, in the... 400, 500 realm under okay. John uh,
1: Lehman, and and China has how many right now?
2: They're approaching four hundred. I don't know if they're over it or not, but they are. They have. They have. They are over us numerically, although not capability.
1: So Arthur, uh, China has traditionally been a, a land power, had not right. been a sea power. I mean, what what's the difference between the sea power and land power well, universe?
0: It, it, uh, the differences are profound, um, and one of them is both in terms of the evolution of political institutions, um, because how you exercise control over large uh, tracts of land, land mass, especially the Eurasian land mass, depends upon command, economies. It depends on an imperial kind of an outlook. Whereas nations, and historically nations that look to the sea as the means by which to make a living, first of all, Uh, through trade, through fishing, humble pursuits like that, but also as a means by which to protect themselves from invaders and interlopers, and to project power, which in the modern age has become really the key distinguishing mark of what separates a great power from a second or a third-class power. Um, Sea power demands um, not just ships, and not just ship-building capacity, it also demands a different kind of mentality. It demands a, a willingness to be more flexible about how you set your goals and objectives. Um, it demands a level of initiative on the part of like sea captains, but also on the part of politicians in terms of setting national goals and how to arrive at those. And it also tends to demand a level of voluntary cooperation, just as we would have on a ship, or just as we would have... Um, and the teamwork that goes into sustaining a first-class navy. And it's not coincidence, Bill, that if you look through history, that the great land-based powers have tended to be autocracies, Mm -hmm. have tended to be totalitarian regimes in the modern age. Think Soviet Union, think communist China, think Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. Whereas the nations that rely upon and look upon uh, the sea and maritime wealth as the source of their wealth and prosperity and well-being have tended to become democracies they tend to be open societies and have a much more much deeper sense of a kind of participatory role for citizens uh and for and for evolving political well, institutions well you know
1: just putting a historical focus uh, venice venice was not only great the great sea power but it was also the longest surviving republic and then Great Britain, obviously, with its navy, and the its, Dutch. the Dutch. Athens. That's right.
0: And also, of course, the United States. And so in the end, when you have to completely ignore the lessons of history, to think that you can allow your maritime and naval power to slide out of, uh, of first-class levels, or to allow an antagonist, particularly one like Communist China. Whose attitudes are not only hostile to the US, but hostile to democracy uh, and to and to our allies as well, to allow that kind of power to, to rise into the uh, in competition with this. You have to ignore lessons of history, going back to the Vikings, my first my most recent book on the Vikings, they're the original exponents of sea power, not just as a way to project power, but also as a means by which to sustain themselves for the trade routes that made them really the precursors of globalization it also at the same time means ignoring our own history and the degree to which our history as a nation was shaped by our relationship with the two oceans well, that sit on either side that
1: us. I guess I'd, I'd never really thought of it but that's that's one of the things that surprised me to think that we were we started thinking of ourselves as a sea power yeah. first and foremost and didn't in the constitution they we we specified that we had to have a standing navy yep but it wasn't specified that we needed a standing army
2: Yeah, to provide and maintain a navy to raise up an army um it's so you know the one is meant to fluctuate is certainly provided for but this this notion in the constitution that this is this is paramount to our security and who we are as a republic.
0: So, what Russ and the Trump administration were doing by saying we really need to restore and rebuild our naval supremacy, not just in the face of China, but as a fundamental part of what it is to protect America." This was an important mission that when I came on board at the National Security Council, my boss, Robert O'Brien, said, "You've got to talk to Russ. You've got to go down and talk to him because he's got a plan about how to do that shipbuilding." And I, and I was a little surprised. I got to be honest with you, Bill, because mm-hmm. I was thinking, Let's see, he's, he's the director of the Office of Management and Budget. You know, I thought, what's he going to know about navies and about, you know, strategic Well, Russ astr- also was
1: focusing an awful lot on cultural issues at Heritage before you came before on board. Before you came on board. And I yeah, thought... so where'd this come from? So
0: I thought, well, I thought, you know, you, director of OMB, <laughs> you imagine a kind of green eye shade type, right, who just can't wait to cross items off that... That shouldn't be paid for as a you know a big goal of a well, tight a budget i
1: work my way through business school teaching accounting majors accounting so i'm going to throw my lot in with Brian. absolutely the green eyeshade
0: <laughs> brigade and gosh knows they're important but for naval supremacy <laughs> for my first conversation with you i realized you got it and that there was someone who was really crafting a plan a long-standing 12-year plan to rebuild american Naval supremacy, but also to relaunch us in the direction of maritime supremacy. And that means shipbuilding. It means a commercial maritime fleet that's going to be second to none. Because if you look at history, last point I'll make on this, look at history. You've never had a nation which has been able to have uh, naval supremacy that isn't built on a foundation of strong commercial maritime trade and a, and a maritime merchant fleet to match Russ, doesn't how'd, exist
1: how do you get interested in the navy i mean what 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 sparked the uh...
2: well you know all of government execution by the on behalf of the president so i was constantly getting brought into meetings with the secretary of defense and and great frustration with you know where we were making progress and where we were not you know our defense levels were high um you know Secretary Mattis focused heavily on things like readiness and lethality, but in terms of modernization, uh, we did not have an all-of-government plan based on convictional uh, principles that you would think of in terms of, all right, what does America First perspective mean, and what does that look like when you go beneath the top line for defense? And um, so, you know, you know the, the thing that got me specifically was the President asked me to go and, and tour the Uh, Ford Carrier because he viewed that largely as an inefficient in its first build and so we really needed to unpack that But over time, you know the more you you investigate the history the more you investigate uh, The research on this the more you come away with a conviction that this is the foundation for a republic And this is not something you skimp on this is something you can be efficient with But this is something that has to be there and and we're spending a ton of money on our nation's defenses the idea that we can't afford this is just not true. So,
1: so our total spends what, $700 billion, roughly? Correct, yeah. And how is that divided uh, among land-based, it's sea-based,
2: a th- air? Uh, so it is about a third, third, and third of Army, Navy, and Air Force. Nice and and that is one of the challenges, is that it is a bureaucrat- bureaucratic uh, division of, of resources. It's not based on strategic choices. It is not based on uh, the presidential uh, uh, decision memos that say, you know, this is the national security strategy. And so one of the things that Arthur and I and Robert were trying to do was w- to really unpack w- that.
1: W- w- watching the Bill Walton show, I'm here with Russ Vogt and Arthur Herman, and we're talking about our defense budget and how it gets allocated among all the various forces. And you just said something and struck me. You're saying nobody's really thinking about the strategy when they divide up how much, who gets what
0: I'm afraid that's it's true. It's just a, it's just a product of, uh, of keep, institutional inertia. It's to keep the different services happy. And that is is that even though we're getting <laughs> we're 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 not getting all what we want, no one is getting any more than we are. And so, and so that's going to make army, navy and the air force feel like even though their budgetary um, allotment may not match what America needs strategically, they at least everybody feels that we're all being we're all being shortchanged at the same rate
1: well so the uh, the totalitarian communist chinese communist party didn't suffer from that problem. they sure didn't they simply said to the army they said we're cutting you in half because it doesn't make sense strategically
0: right and the army was not in a position to say no were they no see this is the interesting thing that in the in the 2000s the chinese made a important strategic decision. You can watch the evolution of this if you read the Chinese military journals, which are written not by scholars, they're written by the generals and admirals themselves. That's part of how you become, you rise up through the ranks in the, in the People's Liberation Army and in the PL, PLAN it is by authorship as well as by leadership. And it reflects a strategic thinking of the time. And part of it was that China was no longer going to be just a land-based power, that we was going to become a hybrid power. And that's actually the term they used. We would be, it would be, it would be un, invisible on land, but we would also have this ability to project power uh, by the seas and in our maritime presence, which is why they started building aircraft carriers. Unheard of, but crucial to China's new vision of itself as a global hegemon.
1: So, Russ, did you get to referee any of the discussions about how much should go where? Because you came to a conclusion that we were vastly underspending on Navy. Did you get? Did you guys get a chance to litigate that?
2: We were in the process of it and we made substantial progress. And we had the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff come out in a speech. Who, very, who was that then? This was Millie, who Miller. came out at the very end and said, Look, you know, this budget that's being crafted. Army's going to need to take a hit because we're a maritime nation. That was after a year of reverse engineering what was necessary to actually achieve the president's objectives. That's because he increase. thought there
1: was less white rage in the Navy. That's right. That's right.
2: <laughs> it, it, exactly. But from the standpoint of that year, it was required to be able to fix the bureaucracy and do what we needed to be able to come to a place where we were going to achieve the president's objective. Well, how much
1: do the cultural issues affect how we divide things up? I mean, if you're a maritime nation like you wrote eloquently about the west country in england about how that was a very rough peninsula and they were all very close to the sea and they developed that culture that you know voluntary cooperation they had a mentality but it was that that was it was part of the british culture in a way to think of themselves as sea in america we don't we seem to have lost that we seem to think of ourselves as army and i guess i'm, I'm making a statement also sort of leading to a question to what extent do things like the Green Berets who have been romanticized and all the boots on the ground we've had, disproportionately given people to think that that's where we ought to put our money? you
2: want to take that? Yeah, so I think you're- I think you're, I asked
1: a question in there, I'm not sure, but I think to you're, discuss. you're absolutely
2: right in the sense <laughs> that we are very Army-centric right now as a culture and as a, uh, in terms of the bureaucracy. Uh, and, and that we saw that in, in, in government. Uh, One of the things that we are trying to uh, prompt a debate about, and we wanted to use our last budget, the the year five budget that we were building to, is to make it so that we are once again a a blue water school of strategic thought, so that the American people, when they think about their national securities, identify with the strong Navy that leads to maritime supremacy so that we can always properly resource it. We never want to be in a situation where uh, you have to just kind of fight for yourself under a top line of what we can afford as a country. We won't want to be able to say what's strategically the most necessary and build from there for threats.
0: Yeah, naval supremacy doesn't exclude the other services or the other types of military power or military force. What it really does is give them an additional agility and an additional flexibility in terms of where they can go, how they can be resupplied, and where they can strike an enemy and catch them unawares that's one of the things the Vikings had. You know, they took the best nautical technology, which was their long ships uh, with a very shallow draft that could go from ocean going to, to river going without missing a beat, and the square sail, and they used that with devastating effect against their enemies. What we have now is a Navy that is poised to have a similar kind of role. You know, the advanced technologies that are coming on board, for example, unmanned and autonomous systems, have to, be, have to be included in the, in the picture of what naval supremacy looks like in the future. But so does air power, so does special operations. All of these are about being able to project force quickly and cleanly and surgically in ways that will preserve and protect American power and American well, interests well, 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 without, without bogging us down in the kinds of nightmares that we saw unfolding in Iraq and Afghanistan but is or our, Vietnam before if, that. If,
1: is, is the division among the branches ossified thinking? Is that all backward-looking? I mean, I think about addressing the China issue. Is that an economic threat? Is it a military threat? Is it a cultural threat? I mean, you think about and you think about it. You and know, I have talked about the way some think tanks organize. They get the economic people on one side, and they're saying, we've got to have unilateral free trade. Then you get the national defense people and the other, and they say, no, 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 the Chinese, we, we can't do that. we got to look at what they're doing, and then the cultural issues we can we can get into. But is it time to do a whole new rethink about defense, and should we think about reorganizing that? Is that even conceivable?
0: That's what these guys were doing. That's, that's what, what the Trump
1: I, administration That's what I want to dig into, because I suspect that Trump would view this pretty much the way I'm
2: seeing it. I do think it's time to make at least reforms in the right direction, uh upsetting a little bit the the, the uh, allocations. Um I think the Navy's been hurt ever since they they were under the Secretary of Defense and not having kind of their own cabinet spot which is where they originally started with. That's true. Uh so I think there are I think it is a I'm sorry, what happened historically? So,
1: Navy Navy you had a Secretary of the Navy that was
0: co equal with the
2: correct.
1: Secretary of War. So, yeah. Okay.
2: And Secretary of Navy. You had a Secretary of War and a Secretary and of Navy. That's right
0: and they were they were co-equals in cabinet, okay. and then with the reorganization of the armed forces after World War II, the 1946, the creation of the Defense Department, both became subsumed under a single head.
2: So they our
1: focus on them. the Navy from the from the founders lingered on until the Cold
2: War. It
0: certainly did. You're absolutely right, Bill. Okay.
2: Yeah, I mean your assistant secretaries are two Roosevelts uh, that went on to very prominent positions after that after that role. Uh, So I do think a lot of it is cultural and just the nature of the way that uh, the bureaucracy runs. It's almost on autopilot bill. They get a number every year. They say, okay, we'll take that number and we'll factor it into our different formulas. And even the secretaries have very little ability to impact the change that that they're being asked to from a president unless – they start a year or two or three years in advance in reverse engineer it and saying, uh, "I understand a lot of things are going to happen, but we're going to come out the other side, and we're going to have this number of ships and what's necessary to achieve that." How long
1: does it take to design and build a modern naval ship?
2: It's depends all over. The the, ship. Yeah, it depends on the ship. But to just give you a sense, you take the Columbia class. Uh, submarine, which is the replacement for our, our, our nuclear subs. The decision on that was to, to go in that direction was 2008. It's not going to hit its first patrol until 2031. So that's another reason why this is so important. You can't You can't just make a mistake and fix it in 10 years. You might be able to be able to raise up an army or train them, get them ready. But when you're talking about building ships, this is a long lead time.
1: You're testing my math skills. Is that
0: like, That's like 23 years. It's 23, 23 years. years. Yep. That's, that's stunning. stunning. It is. And, and But this is not just the case for the U.S. Navy. It's true for all navies. It's always been the problem throughout history that building a strong naval fleet requires time. It requires years of investment, years mm-hmm. of construction, years of integrating new technologies as you go along. And that's one of the reasons why um, focusing on building up Army, um, or even Marine Corps, is a lot faster. It takes it's a lot quicker to train people than it is to build ships.
1: How big a standing army, army should we really have?
2: We are right now about four hundred eighty-five thousand active. Uh, I think part of the question is not just how big it is, but what's the proportion that's active versus National Guard, and we can save a lot of money by transitioning the size into the National Guard so that it's basically three times more expensive for an active guard versus National Guard. So there's things like that that, you know, I do believe we need to have a a smaller army, but I think you can also be able to keep similar numbers, in a in a a different capacity and still get the job done for the various requirements that the military has. And we
0: also have to be honest about another thing, Bill, and that is, is that the biggest increase, the fastest growing increases in our defense budget have been in the area of personnel, providing health benefits, providing uh, additional pay, providing all the other ways in which an all-volunteer force can remain all-volunteer because there are incentives to people to enlist, to stay on, and to make careers out of their life in, in the military, whether it's Navy or the Air Force or, or it's Army or Marines.
1: But the ratio tip to spear is infinitesimal, is it not? I mean, the number of people actually go out and fight versus the people supporting them, is like, isn't that ratio yeah, like exactly. 25 to one? Yeah. I mean, we don't really have an army.
0: We've got a,
1: a, a healthcare system that, that has guns.
0: Yep. And part of, part of the transition to, uh, to, to the new technologies, such as unmanned systems, uh, such as moving from uh, big cumbersome systems, like, I'm afraid, the Columbia-class submarine or the ford class aircraft carrier is is that you can help to reduce the personnel costs uh, as a way of increasing savings while you're investing more in the in, in what really counts, and that is the weapons systems that you need to deter and defeat enemies and that's what that's what the mili- that's what the defense budget should really mm-hmm. be about. what is it we need in order to defeat and deter enemies and instead it's become over the years, it's nothing new. Uh, it's, it's been a part, of, part and parcel of how we've uh, had, grow, had a defense establishment grow, a military industrial complex, the size and complexity that it is, is, is that it has become instead ways of protecting vested interests and uh, preserving sacred cows, instead of really thinking about what America needs in order to, in order to be strong in order to remain strong
1: you're watching the bill walton show i'm here with arthur herman and uh Russ vote and we're talking about the defense establishment that america really needs uh, not what the bureaucratic inertia has given us uh so I, I, I can't even begin to ask about joe biden i'm sure he didn't can he find the <laughs> pentagon on the map i mean is he well, he's been there a long time. What How, about the people I, around him? What about I, I'll Millie tell you what. And-
0: here's, a, here's, here's, where, here's where I came in, because one of the things, one of my last tasks at the National Security Council was to prepare a series of memos that could be passed on to the next administration about why we had made amazing progress during the Trump years uh, in certain areas of our defense uh, policy. And one of those areas was in thinking about and relaunching the idea of naval supremacy. So part of my assignment was to prepare a memo in effect to to say what Russ was doing and his team were doing you need to stay on this. This is a really good plan. It's one that saves money but also builds ships and gets us to the 355 ship navy that we feel that every expert feels is going to be the minimum to confront not just the challenge of China how many but the carriers of the how many
1: carriers would that give us
0: uh, eleven. Eleven. Yeah. The idea was to keep it at eleven, and I remember when thir- having thirteen was considered to be uh, inadequate to the task.
1: And would that allow us to be active in the South China Sea as well as every place else we need mm-hmm. to I be? I think so. Yeah. What about the Arctic? I mean, is that how many do we have, do we have carriers in the Arctic as the, well? The
2: issue in the Arctic is more the Coast Guard uh, icebreakers, and that's a, another conversation. And a, but a definite need. And that's what we were also trying to do in the conjunction of this project, is to scale up Coast Guard as well.
0: Yep, that was a big part of the program as well. But what's happened is, I'm afraid, is that those memos and those plans were were pushed aside. And as we've learned with this administration, their key focus is entirely on their domestic project. It's completing the Obama transformation of America, uh, especially with this new you know, $3.5 trillion infrastructure plan, which is really going to be about $5 trillion. Um, And everything else is subordinate to that, whether it's Afghanistan, uh, whether it's uh, the competition and the threat from China, or whether it is protecting American interests and having a military that really is able to do that, uh, as opposed to one which simply has enough of a budget to keep the joint chiefs and others and defense contractors from getting really upset
1: you look at the way biden's handling afghanistan and you get the feeling he just doesn't
0: care it's hard to escape from that conclusion. and
1: and why would he think that well he's thinking there's a bigger priority which is this domestic project it's to bring about the transformation the fundamental transformation
0: and my view bill and maybe russ shares this too is they're also feel like they're rushing against the clock. They're racing against the clock because what they see is a Republican landslide in the House in 2022 and one which will interrupt, interrupt any kind of Of ability to push through. Of course,
1: that's also why why they're rushing through H.R. 4, the the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, because that would give the Justice Department and the Civil Rights Division complete control over local elections, and they could ensure a win.
0: They could. That's right. But all of that. Why does it
1: feel like we're fighting like. 22 wars on... on.
0: <laughs> and, and the result is, is that these issues that we're discussing or have been talking about here, which are really vital to protecting American, and the interests of allies. That's one of the things we mustn't forget. We think about American in relationship yeah. with the allies. Those allies, our most important ones, are also maritime powers, whether you're talking about, or were, <laughs> whether you're talking about Great Britain, or you're talking about Japan, um, uh, Taiwan, uh, our maritime, our maritime power is the is the is the oil that keeps l- the alliances active and lubricated through all of this. If we if we allow our maritime and naval power to slip into second class status, it's going to be really hard to keep those alliances going um, and to be able to maintain Rush, them. Russ, you
1: said in a budget of seven hundred million, you needed to shift six billion. To the Navy, and that could have gotten a lot done that you felt needed to be done. Yeah, so that's less than one percent.
2: That's that. That is the the most frustrating aspect about the debate is we're literally talking about four to six billion dollars. the The number that we needed for this year was twenty seven billion. Biden proposed twenty two point six billion. So you know, four and a half billion dollars is what we're talking about here, and uh, that's where you have to really you, you need people that are diving down into the weeds to figure out. I guarantee you can always shift that within the Pentagon or, was, or with the rest of the. Was there government. anybody
1: that thought about that on the Biden Biden camp? Because it seems to me sometimes like everything you are doing is just whatever Trump wanted to do. We're going to reverse, and we're not even going to think about why we're doing it.
0: I think that's kind of what happened with the naval shipbuilding. Yeah. And to tell you the truth, I think all all it had it had the the stigma of having been something to come out of the Trump administration. And all the arguments you could present about how necessary this was, how feasible it was, all went, all went by the boards.
2: So we actually put forward a public version of the budget that was to come because we didn't know the situation that we were going to find ourselves, whether it was going to be us in office or not. We chose a top line that reasonably the Biden administration could have chosen relatively uh, with inflation freeze. And so we made the trade-offs within that level, and we largely reinvested OCO savings, which, for your audience, is uh, overseas contingent uh, funds for Afghanistan. Not only for the
1: audience, for me. What is that savings? OCO savings?
2: OCO savings, overseas counterinsurgency funding. And we uh, reinvested that into uh, the Navy, into modernization. And so we figured out the way to do it, and we capped Army and strength. And so... Arthur's right. I mean, this was there on a silver platter. In fact, the budget had been negotiated with all of the brass and had been signed off on. It was ready to go. And you put
1: that out in an op-ed in the journal in in December. So it's out there for everybody to take a look at If you want to just, you know, Google Yeah,
2: and there's more in-depth than that, yeah. And Uh, it was
0: swept aside. A different set of priorities came into play and a very different vision of what American defense would look like came into came into uh, came out of the stage instead
1: who's our secretary of navy now
2: del toro secretary del toro does he I get, get that this
1: right? is he an advocate for the navy is he just
2: it i'm <laughs> we're not going to say anything bad
0: about secretary of the navy currently what i would say is that if you look at if you look at the national security leadership that we've seen with afghanistan i think you're seeing something which is characteristic across the boards when it comes to these matters. I think, though, that the real issue, Bill, we have to be honest about this, is the real issue, the problem is at the top. And it's a president who, I think, really doesn't care about these issues at all. Um, and who, when, he is, when he's focused, <laughs> the times when he's focused on policy, uh, it's all about placating his left, the Democrats' left base and keeping them happy and keeping them from revolting against anything that's put forward here. And so um, you have someone, with Joe Biden, who has spent his career going along, you know, with the Senate consensus. This is not a place where it builds strong leaders, the, realm, the world of the Senate. Um, and you contrast him with someone like Donald Trump, who whatever else you can say about him, he was never afraid to slay sacred cows. He was quite happy to take a completely fresh look at something, and to say that's where the problem is, and that's the problem. We that's to one of solve. his best qualities, I think, without a doubt. And we have a president whose attitude is the opposite, and he's assembled a team who are not going to uh, make waves, if I may use that expression.
1: How worried should we be? I mean, could we defend Taiwan?
2: I, I think that the what we're seeing in Afghanistan should trouble us all from the standpoint of they have no ability or seemingly willingness to run a process that would give you any confidence that they can defend the country. Well,
1: they're acting like they can't do anything.
0: Wait a second. It's It's been put entirely in the hands of the Taliban.
2: What they say goes.
0: And that's where the Biden administration. So the question is, is not whether we could
1: protect Taiwan is whether we would protect we would. Taiwan.
0: I think that that's it. We certainly would have the means by which to do it. Um, but uh, we have to think about the relationship between t- China should. and Taiwan is being much more than simply a question of an invasion. You know, a sort of an Operation Sea Lion. That suddenly Chinese troops and landing craft, and, are, are appearing. <laughs> um, the, they have. There are many other ways in which they can put the squeeze on Taiwan. If you look at what's happened with Tibet, for example, the absorption of Tibet into the Chinese Empire has been going on for decades. It's been mm-hmm. a long, slow, inexorable process. And I suspect you'll see, you're gonna see more of that with regard to Taiwan. The only way in which the US can deter that kind of slow absorption of Taiwan into the Chinese sphere of influence, which would be catastrophic, I gotta tell you, in so many respects, not least in terms of where, where the global semiconductor industry is well, you' Yeah, I was gonna say that you focus, I for mean, example, one of the,
1: the, the top semiconductor uh, d- 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 is
0: in Taiwan. That is in Taiwan, and they sell all over the <clears> globe, <throat> including the United States. It would be catastrophic on a global scale. But in order to do that, we'll require a a firm statement of deterrence that says, we not just, we're going to stand with Taiwan, but that these are the kinds of, that, to show that kind of strength and that show that kind of support in obvious ways. One would be joint military exercises with the Taiwanese Navy, for example. One would be uh, making uh, Taipei a port of call for U.S. warships and, and Navy ships. Where's, where's Japan in this, or oh, Australia? that's a very interesting question. Um, I spent a lot of time working with Japan and yeah. on defense trade and defense issues, as well as technology issues. And I would say right now, my conversations with Japanese officials, both high and low, is they're very worried. They were very worried during the Obama years, Bill, because what they saw was a... Declared, they saw. A declared. This is the Japanese calling, right? Calling now. right now. <laughs> yeah,
1: they're calling. They,
0: they're, they're gonna say. They're gonna say. Dr. Herman is right. He's absolutely <laughs> correct. Um, that the uh, that they what they saw was the Pacific Pivot, which was in words only, had no real substance to it. They, at first, they were worried about Donald Trump because they had read about Donald Trump in the American media, and then, so they thought he was going to be a wild man. They thought he was going to be. A someone who's going to turn his back on the rest of the world and, you know, America first and so on. What they didn't realize is, is that America first, what that really meant was American leadership, and the, what they're seeing now, what they fear in the case of the Biden administration, is a reversion to Obama 2.0. In other words, a, a, a declarations of support, but no concrete action in order to limit the power that China can bring to bear in in regionally, but also globally. Russ, you think that's... No, I
2: think that's a great encapsulation of where we are. Um, I would also go back to another point and, and be a little more provocative in that I do believe that the Navy needs to do more to articulate its interests. Mm-hmm. Um, if if totally we're talking right. about, totally right. uh, you know, the Air Force of the Army, they are not uh, bashful about what their interests are, and they're very clear about what it w- will take to defend the country, and the Navy just has gotten used to not doing that. The Navy seems to, to think that a little bit more contextually and say, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to get the Columbia funded, or I'm not going to be able to have the readiness dollars I need to train my, sa- my, my seamen unless I go along politically. And we just need something more from the Navy than that. Uh, you know, I joke around. I used to tell NASA, I, I used to tell them, for one day, can you act like NASA? NASA, <laughs> NASA just does press releases about their needs. They never stick to process. Just one day, can you tell me what you need so I don't have to figure it out? I just need to know what you need. Uh, and we need, the, we need them to step up in that way.
1: You're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with uh, Arthur Herman and Russ Vogt, and we are, Russ, informing us that the Navy needs to behave more like NASA (laughs) and step up and get some of that money. That's a great way to look at it. I quite agree. agree. That's a great way to put it, but they just don't. Now, how much is, I mean, we read about the critical race theory training and the desire to move to the domestic agenda I mean, how much has that colored all these strategic decisions that we're talking about? Because uh-huh. we're talking about in terms of traditional national defense as if we actually want to defend our country. There seems to be people involved that don't really
0: care about that. I don't know. Um, I think that there's still... I was, st- deep... I was trying to
1: up one-up Russ on provocative. <laughs> I think there's
0: a deep <laughs> reservoir of patriotism and there's a deep reservoir of concern about America's ability to defend itself at and the reasons top? why we do it at the top across the board. Okay. But I think that there is a lot of fear that um, that speaking out on these subjects uh, can cost you your job. And uh, you know, we saw this, you know, we saw the same thing in the 1970s, where those who spoke out about the growth of Soviet naval power, for example, were silenced, were told to shut up where you had a secretary of the Navy by the name of Jim Webb, who was very forthright about it. He was was strong. He could be a little bit of a loose cannon, uh, to borrow a nautical Navy metaphor. Um, But at the same time, he was very forthright about what the threat was and what something needed to be done about it. And uh, he ruffled a lot of feathers. We also have to understand, too, that the investment in large-scale weapon systems that take decades to develop, and enormous investment of technologies of all kinds, uh, complex ones, and even ones that stretch out beyond the horizon, is a very good living (laughs) for defense contractors. Uh, And I say that having some of my closest friends are defense contractors. I work closely with companies like Rocky Martin, and uh, Northrop Grumman, and General Atomics. there is a degree of comfort that comes with knowing that you're going to be making money on a project, defense project, for that's going to stretch out for two decades or yeah. more. Yeah, I got you. And it's not so much that they only care about making money. It's that this is the way in which they become quiescent and are made to be, like with the Navy spokesman, are made to go along with a situation that they know is not sustainable.
2: And there's cheaper and better ways to do. It. I mean, you look at the frigate, and, and the frigate is the small surface combatant, one step smaller than your your destroyer. The frigate was was uh, was competitively bid based on a current design. So instead of having to go and start over and add 15 new things, which is part of the reasons why the the Ford carrier is so complicated and, and delayed, they they kind of knew what they were dealing with, and they got they said we're going to bid this out based on what we know, what will work across the globe. And, you know, it was much cheaper and much quicker. So I think there's ways to do what you have
1: to have enough people in there who think like that. You do do. absolutely. And,
2: and understand the value of that. I mean, one of the
0: lessons from my book to rule the waves about the British Navy and its history is, is that quantity has its own quality. And so simply having a lot of ships that can accomplish certain kinds of specific missions can do a lot to project power and to deter aggressors in ways that waiting for the biggest and the most advanced systems simply can't do and simply won't be able to achieve. And I think this is also one of the things which I've seen with regard to the latest budget from the the Biden administration is there is, and I've seen this trick before, is, is that while there are going to be advanced systems in the future that will make existing fleet or our existing um, aircraft, for example, the, F, the F/A-18, obsolete. So we're investing in the future, right, in systems that will come offline in 10 or 15 years. So, well, we'll so therefore we can begin the process of retiring or allowing these other systems to fall into disuse. It's a, it's a, it's a self-delusion trick, but it has happened before where. The pretense of investing advanced technologies allow, takes you off the hook of having to invest and in, and to refurbish
1: just fixing what you already have and, and mobilize sure what it you works. already and have. Had, even no matter how Peter, effective with ICBM, we've got an ICBM capability that we're not sure whether it's going to work or not. Yeah, because we stopped all the testing. Right.
2: Yeah. What Arthur's referring to is the budget version of a magic asterisk. You know, let's just say call it unmanned. And somehow it will materialize in 10 years well we need to plan so it does materialize but we certainly can't bet the house on uh, unmanned in its entirety we need to do both
1: i've got a question for the former head of the omb our national debt we're now running towards a five trillion dollar another spending bill our national debt where are we now 23 24, 28 yeah 28 trillion Yep. so we're now at about 110 120 percent of gdp
2: yeah, we just went over a hundred percent of GDP during the COVID. months. Okay,
1: so it's it's higher than it was in World War II and counting. And what and we're you know you can fund the debt with or you can fund the spending with uh, taxes. There's not enough to, people to tax to do that. You can do it with debt, or you can do it with inflation. If we get inflation, we get rising interest rates. The interest on the national debt where are we now? It's about four hundred billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And the They're defense balance. budget's about $700 billion. So if you get a, and then the estimate is that the, trevi- the deficit's supposed to go from like t- where we are in $28 trillion to $50 trillion. And almost half the money that builds up is, is interest, financing interest on the debt. It's sort of like your credit card where you just yeah. get underwater and you never recover. At what point does the interest, does spending on interest in a national debt swamp national defense?
2: And we really are underwater, aren't we?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, there's a bigger issue here that we're just acting like this is.
2: You know, those things, those numbers fluctuate, we're, but, and sometimes we're within five, six, six years of, of being inverse with regard to national defense and in, in, in interest. Uh, so, it's a real problem, um, we are benefited right now because of the low interest rates. Uh, but those, if those change, and they are, they are higher than when we were dealing with, and so this, this idea that they don't move is not true. Um, they was, Trump,
1: was Trump worried about that?
2: Because uh, he, he
1: spent a lot of money. He was hardly... Uh, uh, so
2: his uh, view on these issues was, we have a house that's burning in front of us. Yeah. Let's put out the fire, and then we let's have a strong economy, knowing that you can't deal with the, the, uh, your balancing budgets and debt without a strong economy. But he always gave us the ability and, and backed us to propose big budgets that Congress ignored. But we were strategically that political capital was there to build towards a spending fight for this reason but as the former budget director i mean this is an efficient way to go to be able to be able to guard your national security to invest in in, in maritime supremacy is something that i actually came away with it from a, from the from an efficiency standpoint and said if we have a national security strategy that's built on this we will be able to s- save ourselves from Having nation building and being stuck in continental uh, skirmishes that we can't ever get out of, and in the in the wash, we will have a much uh, cheaper way to go from that standpoint. Yeah,
1: the leadership of our land forces hardly has a stellar track record to uh, to stand on. Our time is about done. I want to get some final thoughts. Who wants to go first, Arthur?
0: This is I think we're kind of at a tipping point here and an inflection point in in where America is going to go in the next couple of years. And I think what we've seen is in the larger picture is America hit by two um, devastating blows in this last couple of years, one has been COVID. The other one is now Afghanistan. And I think it's a question that we need to ask ourselves, will America be able to recover from those two? Will we be uh, able to uh, rise up, be as strong as we were, or even stronger in the shadow of those two twin catastrophes? Or are we going to slide into second class power status, the way France did after World War I, or the way Great Britain did after World War II? Now, in both cases, they paid a much higher price for falling from the great powers. In the case of France, you had, you had a large portion of its male population wiped out during the Great War. You had, in the case of Britain, one quarter of its national wealth destroyed in World War II. We don't, face, we don't face penalties of that kind in any respect. What we do face is a lack of political will and a lack of political leadership. And unless that's restored, Bill, not just with regard to the Navy or maritime supremacy, but in terms of America's position in the world, I really worry about where we're gonna be uh, in, the next, in the next two years.
1: Well, there's no, if that happens, and I fear you may be right, there's only one candidate for the ascendant power
0: in the world, and that's China. That's all that's left. France and Britain were able to hand off their global responsibilities as protectors God. and defenders yeah. of democracy to the United States. There's no one waiting in the wings if we fail. Yeah. Russ? Yeah, that's, that's...
2: China's the fight. We need to be doing everything we can to prepare for that confrontation and hope it never happens because we are strong enough. To be able to be strong enough so that confrontation never happens, we need to be strong from the standpoint of of our maritime uh, supremacy. And so that, I'm I'm optimistic in one sense, and that is this, with education, uh, with the American people coming alongside and saying, you know, this is something that's important we have an opportunity in the next several years to get it right i i to some extent i'm i don't think uh, president biden's going to get it but i do think we have the opportunity to to build and catch up in the in the years ahead if we get it right i think we
1: can operate under the assumption that biden's not going to get it but yeah. the rest of us can why well, let's do some more of this because we really need to get the word out about these issues and i don't think it's not being talked about right now and it should be it's essential russ vote Arthur Ehrman. Thank you. This is thank fantastic. I thanks, want Bill. to get you guys back. We've covered about one, one of what we ought to cover and happy you're all watching the Bill Walton show. And you can find us on YouTube or all the major podcast platforms. And you can also see us live on Monday nights on CPAC now. And uh, we will, uh, we'll be talking with you again soon. So thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining. Thank you.